Well, if you have your Bible, as Russ has already uh, indicated, we're going to be starting a brand new series today in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, While you're turning there, and it might take you a little while, uh, I simply want to explain why we're going to be spending the next few months looking at what, let's face it, is a pretty obscure book of the Bible. Now, of course, the fact that it's in the Bible in the first place should be reason enough for looking at it. We believe that all Scripture, the whole Bible, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting us, and training us in righteousness. And so we want to take the whole teaching of the Bible in uh, over the years. But I want to tell you why Habakkuk in particular is important to you, important for me, and why I think it's especially relevant for each of us right now. And to do that, I'm going to have to set up some history for you, because if you're going to understand the message of Habakkuk, you're going to need to understand where it fits into the story of the Bible. Now, my thunder has been slightly stolen uh, by Life Live yesterday. Those who are here saw the telling of the entire Bible in five minutes with props and drama. Um, I'm afraid I'm just unable to do that, uh, but I want to do uh, my own attempt at telling the story, at least of the majority of the Old Testament. And as we go through uh, just kind of uh, story after story, life after life, some you'll be familiar with, others will be new to you, I want you to grasp something of the kind of layers of hope and despair which went on for years, decades, centuries, generation after generation, this mixture, this combination of hope and despair. All of that is the context, the backdrop for the book of Habakkuk. So back in the beginning, after Adam and Eve had rebelled against God, and Noah's generation had been wiped out in the flood, and people had been scattered across the face of the earth after the whole Tower of Babel fiasco. After all of that, God makes a covenant, a promise, with a guy called Abraham. He promises that Abraham's descendants would become a mighty kingdom and that they would be God's chosen people on the face of the earth. There's phenomenal hope in the promise. But if you know the story, Abraham was 75 years old when the promise came, and at that point in time, he was childless. Eventually, his wife did give birth to a son, but not before years and years and years of angst as they waited for what increasingly seemed like the impossible to happen. Now, after Abraham, things still didn't appear to be going particularly well. His descendants, the people of Israel, ended up as a nation in slavery in Egypt. And once they were delivered out of slavery, their lack of faith resulted in them wandering through the desert until an entire generation died out. Once they finally entered the promised land, they were constantly fighting and warring. And then after years of pleading with God to give them a king so they could be like the other nations of the earth, God finally gives them King Saul. And Saul, in the end, was unbelievably disappointing as a king. After Saul comes David. And David's reign is marked by a great deal of bloodshed. 
He's constantly at war with the Philistines and the other surrounding nations. He's a fighter in every sense of the word, but he's also a phenomenal leader and a passionate, passionate worshipper. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always been drawn to David because of his incredible honesty. Read the Psalms. You're confronted with the whole range of emotions that we experience as we attempt to walk with God while trying to battle against all the frustrations and perplexities of life. Literally, you're on one page, and he's like, how long, O Lord, will you forsake me? Turn the page, and it's like, you're so near, I can hardly breathe. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Next page, will you ever listen to me again? Next page, you have never left me. And on and on and on it goes like that. We're drawn to this guy because we can go, absolutely, we can relate to that. We're drawn to him because those of us who follow Jesus, I guess most of us have had those times where it feels like he's in the room with us. We've also been through times where we felt like he's just a million miles away. We've all been there. We've all experienced stuff like that. And that's why so many of us are drawn to the Psalms. It's like they reflect so many of our own feelings and emotions. So David reigns. And it has to be said, he does so incredibly successfully. He's established Israel's borders. There's still a little bit of violence near the end of his life, but he's beginning to settle down. It's pretty evident that Israel is going to win its war with the Philistines. And as they're moving into this period of peace, David begins to plead with God to allow him to build a temple where the nations of the earth could gather together and worship the one true God. And God tells David, no. He says, there's too much blood on your hands. You've spilt too much blood in your reign. I'm going to let your son Solomon build the temple instead of you. And so David spends the remaining years of his life in preparation, gathering supplies that his son Solomon will need for the building of this temple. And then David dies. And it's as quick as that. Just by way of an aside, it's pretty sobering, isn't it, to, to watch how powerful men of God die in the Bible. They die in a verse, and then the story goes on. It's true in the Bible, it's, it's true of your life, true of my life. I tell you, grasping something of the brevity of life is unbelievably helpful in keeping everything else in perspective. So David dies, and after David Solomon, his son, reigns. And Solomon builds the temple just as God said he would. And it's the pinnacle of Israel's existence. They're at peace, they're building, the economy is flourishing, all kinds of good things are happening. After waiting for centuries and centuries and centuries for God's promises to Abraham to be fulfilled, it finally feels as though it's all within grasp. For generations, they kept walking and trudging and stumbling and trying to get there. And then all of a sudden, there it is. It's like the temple's built. The nation is finally at peace. There aren't a whole lot of threats, not a lot of problems. It has to be said, Solomon's rule is pretty spectacular. It was a golden age in Israel's history. But if you look more closely at Solomon's writings. You kind of see the storm clouds 
on the horizon. He writes in Ecclesiastes, who cares how much stuff you make and how much stuff you build if your sons are idiots? That's kind of my paraphrase of what he says, but that's pretty much accurate. Who cares how much stuff you make, how much stuff you build if your sons are idiots? Because all that's going to happen is you're going to die, and all that you build, all that you're made, is going to be given to fools. And in the aftermath of Solomon's death, those words seem particularly poignant. Straight after Solomon dies, Israel begins to disintegrate from the inside out. His sons are arguing. There's a whole lot of bickering and infighting. It doesn't take long for Israel to split, to divide into two separate countries. There's Israel in the north, made up of two tribes, Judah in the south, made up of ten tribes. And before they knew it, Israel was captured by the Babylonians, led off into exile, leaving Judah all alone, falling more and more away from God and into idolatry. In fact, by the time we pick up the story, King Amon has built other temples in Judah. There are temples to other gods. People are blatantly idolatrous. And the temple that Solomon built, this monument to God's fulfillment of his promises, to God's faithfulness and goodness, has begun to fall apart and become dilapidated. And in the end, King Amon dies, and his son Josiah takes over the throne at the age of eight. Now, just to pause there for a moment, this whole idea kind of blows my mind. I mean, I've got a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old, and I'm just trying to think of a country where either of them ruled it for any length of time. And much as I love my sons, it really doesn't bear thinking about. Now, we don't know what happens here, but Josiah, by the time he reaches the age of 16, devotes his mind and his heart to God. And he begins to lead all of these reforms in the nation, getting the people to repent of their idolatry and finally turn back towards God. He decides he needs to repair the temple that's become broken down. And in the process, a scroll is discovered. Now, whether it's a Christian theologian or just a secular historian, pretty much everyone agrees that the scroll discovered was more than likely the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through to Deuteronomy. And Josiah opens up or unrolls the scroll and begins to read. And he can't stop weeping as he reads it, because the law highlights all of their shortcomings and all of their failures when it comes to being perfect as God has called them to be perfect. So he reads it and he weeps and he weeps and he weeps. And then Josiah calls the entire nation to gather together. They all gather together as one man and Josiah and the high priest together read the scroll to the people and they're absolutely devastated they're cut to the heart. He calls a Passover meal. He points people back to God's deliverance of them. He calls them back into their covenant relationship with the one true God. There's mass repentance and what can only be described as an Old Testament revival. In almost every sector of culture, from government to justice to education, wherever you look, there's this call back to God. And while all of this was going on, there were three main world superpowers at the time. And Judah 
really wasn't one of them. Judah was more like the Isle of Skye. No one is afraid of the Isle of Skye. I mean, I'm sure it's a great place to live, but there's more sheep than people. So Judah's small and almost insignificant on the world stage. And you've got three main superpowers. One of them is Assyria. They're the most powerful, but they're in decline. Another is the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, and they're on the rise through conquering and enslaving the countries around them. They're brutal in the extreme. They're unbelievably vicious and violent. And then there's Egypt. Egypt was a major player, but it was also gradually going into decline. Now what happens, and all of this is important in understanding the book of Habakkuk, I assure you, what happens is Nico, Pharaoh of Egypt, sends a letter to Josiah and says he wants to take his army through Judah and into Assyria. Now, we don't know what he was planning to do, we don't know why he was going there, but he asks for permission and Josiah refuses. Now, this enrages Nico because the equivalent of the Isle of Skye isn't going to tell him what he can and can't do with his army. So, he marches his army straight through Judah anyway. And Josiah's not having it. So, he calls together his Timpot army and meets the armies of Egypt in the valley of Megiddo. And you can't do anything but love Josiah. Josiah disguises himself as a soldier and joins the ranks of his men. Now, you and I can go, well, that's probably a daft idea. I mean, he's the king. He should be some distance away overseeing the strategy and making sure that he's safe. But to a man in the trenches, to have your king go, no, I'm not asking you to die, I'm willing to die with you. That's just an unbelievably courageous, inspirational, motivational thing. But it doesn't end well. Tragically, right in the middle of this battle of Megiddo, Josiah, this reformer, this man being used greatly by God to call his people into repentance, Josiah is killed. He had, two, he had sons, and they immediately take one of his sons, Jehoaz, and put him on the throne. But he doesn't last long. He immediately begins to operate in the order of his grandfather, Amon, and not like his dad. He begins to lead Israel gradually back into idolatry. Now, after Necho was done with whatever he was doing in Assyria, he comes back down through Judah and takes Jehoaz as a prisoner down to Egypt, where eventually he dies in captivity. And so Josiah's other son, Jehokim, he ends up on the throne. And sadly, he's even worse than his brother. For the next 11 years, he leads Judah hurtling towards destruction. All the reforms that Josiah had made, all the God-honoring, God-exalting reforms, all the progress was completely and utterly blown to pieces. And it's during this period that Habakkuk appears on the scene. I want us to look at how the book opens. Hopefully that's given everyone the opportunity to find it. Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The oracle, or the burden, that Habakkuk, the prophet, received... 
Let's just pause there. That's pretty much all we know about Habakkuk. We don't know who his father was, don't know his occupation. All we know is his name and that he's a prophet and he receives this burden and that he's alive during the latter part of the stories that I've just told you. So let's look at what Habakkuk makes of everything that's going on around him. Verse 2, how long, O Lord, must I call for help but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. I want you to try and put yourself in Habakkuk's shoes. You've seen godlessness and idolatry reign. And because you care deeply about God and God's glory, you've begged God, you've pleaded with God to do something about it. You've watched as God has begun to answer those prayers. There's a movement back towards Him. People are repenting. They're they're turning their hearts and their minds, their actions towards God. It, It feels like the nation's on the cusp of a revival that's rivaled anything except early in Israel's history only to watch it all unravel right before your eyes and then get worse than it ever was before. He's going, God, what are you doing? God, how could you let this happen? God, aren't you going to do anything about this? And as we're going to see in the weeks to come, the ultimate bitter pill to swallow is that this violence, this oppression, this injustice ends up having nothing to do with the Assyrians or the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. It ends up coming from God's own people. Habakkuk saying, God, why do you let your own people act like this? Why do you let your people live in this way? Aren't you just? Aren't you God? How can you idly sit by and let this happen? Here's why I think Habakkuk is such an important book. I think almost all of us hit spots like this at some point in our life. We're almost all going to hit those moments where something happens, where something goes on, where something occurs either with us or with someone we love that has us going, God, what in the world are you doing? If you're loving, if you're gracious, if you're good, how can this be happening? If you pay attention to secular arguments against there being a divine being. Tell me, this isn't one that gets mentioned almost every time. If there's some loving, if there's some all-knowing, if there's some all-powerful God, explain to me, if you can, the atrocities against humanity in places like Syria right now. What you'll never hear is the fact that two of the bloodiest movements in the 20th century were actually led by people who believed there was no God, Stalin and Mao. 
But this is a question that constantly gets thrown at people of faith. Why does God allow this to happen? Why do these things occur? And at some point in your life, or in my experience, at regular intervals, we'll hit a moment, we'll hit a point where we ourselves don't understand what God is doing. It might be stuff that we're going through personally. It might be pain. It might be periods where every prayer doesn't seem to be answered. Maybe in the lives of people we love and care for. Maybe it's stuff in our nation. This whole series kind of started taking shape in my mind last summer where there were riots in this city and London and uh, stuff you saw on your TV screens for several days. God, what are you doing? What's going on? Or recently, just seeing what's happening with the move towards gay marriage and kind of other stuff morally going on in our nation. God, where are you? What are you doing? Internationally, just seeing disaster after disaster, the injustice, the atrocities. Here these moments where we don't understand what God's doing. And I love the fact that Habakkuk is just honest here. He's not playing games. He's confused. He's frustrated. He's incredibly perplexed. And he's actually bringing all of that to God. I mean, what a crazy idea. I, I, I thought you were just supposed to hide that and pretend everything's fine. When someone asks you how you are, you kind of put on a smile and say, yeah, everything's great. But Habakkuk comes to God and says, God, are you going to do nothing about this? Aren't you listening to what we're saying? I think a lot of us have been in that place. Or if we haven't, we are going to be there eventually. So, Today, for the rest of our time, more than I want to work through the specifics of Habakkuk's complaint in these verses, I'd rather spend our time looking at what happens when we're unwilling to be honest with God and with one another. Because in my experience, it actually creates a whole lot of extra problems for us. So before we're done, let me very quickly flag up just three things that happen when we refuse to be honest with God and with one another about where we are, what we're thinking, and what we're feeling. If we refuse to be honest with God and with others, here's what happens. Number one, very often worship becomes an impossibility. Worship just becomes impossible for us. When we're face to face with difficulty, with doubt, with fear, with pain, Really, we're faced with a choice. We can either buckle under the pressure of it all, or we can dive into the nature and character of God. I guess we all know what it feels like to buckle under the pressure of it all. It's like a a faith begins to get shredded. It can all seem pretty bleak, pretty dark, pretty hopeless. Just can't keep going any longer. All we can see is the problem, and it shapes everything. But what happens when we get punched in the soul and when we have these doubts and we have these frustrations and we have these fears and we're experiencing this pain? What happens when we experience all of that and yet choose through it all to dive into the nature of God 
is we begin to see how infinitely large He is and how minusculely small we are. And although it doesn't answer every question, although it doesn't necessarily change our circumstance, there is this strange comfort that occurs in that moment. It's like we're reminded of our place in the universe. And in that moment, we're not all-powerful. We're not all-conquering. In that moment, we become aware there is someone bigger than us. In that moment, we're reminded. And here's what often happens. Out of our pain, out of our anguish, out of our frustration, out of our perplexity, worship happens. Worship happens. Out of the overflow of feeling how small I am and how big and beyond understanding God is. I'm just in awe. And through it all, my heart is stirred to worship Him. I think that's why we tend to go on holiday to the coast. That's why we go on holiday to the mountains. You go to where what you see is more powerful, is larger, is bigger than you. And you can kind of, for a moment, get caught up in that and kind of just stare at it. It's spectacular. It's awesome. It kind of stirs feelings of praise in us. Now what happens when there's pain? What happens when there's sorrow? What happens where there's hurt? What happens where there's this fear kind of clamping down on us? What happens to us if we're honest about how we're feeling and yet still choose to press into God? What happens is, invariably, we encounter Him. And although it doesn't necessarily change everything, it does change our perspective. It's like, He's bigger than me. It's not all random and out of control. And although I may never understand, I'm glad that there is a God whose thoughts are higher than mine. Where you run to God with your problems and your questions and your frustration and your pain, you get to know something of the character and the nature of God. And when you get to know his size and his might and his strength, all situations become not only bearable, but maybe even fountains of joy. And for some of you right now, in the midst of your situation, that might sound insane. But I promise you, it is true. I mean, isn't that the pattern of so many of the Psalms? I just want to read you one. Kind of illustrates this kind of journey we can go on. Psalm 102, this is how it's described. A prayer of an afflicted man, when he is faint and pours out his lament before the Lord. This is how it starts. Hear my prayer, O Lord. 
Let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me when I'm in distress. Turn your ear to me when I call. Answer me quickly. For my days vanish like smoke. My bones burn like glowing embers. My heart is blighted and withered like grass. I forget to eat my food. Because of my loud groaning, I'm reduced to skin and bones. I'm like a desert owl, like an owl among the ruins. I lie awake. I've become like a bird alone on a roof. All day long, my enemies taunt me. Those who rail against me use my name as a curse, for I eat ashes as my food and mingle my drink with tears because of your great wrath. You've taken me up, and it feels like you've thrown me aside. My days are like the evening shadow. It's as though I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, on your people, for it's time to show favour to her. The appointed time has surely come. For her stones are dear to your servants. Her very dust moves them to pity. The nations will fear the name of the Lord. All the kings of the earth will revere your glory. For the Lord will rebuild Zion and appear in his glory. He'll respond to the prayer of the destitute. He will not despise their plea. Let this be written for a future generation that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high. From heaven he viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and release those condemned to death. So the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when the peoples and the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord. In the course of my life, He broke my strength. He cut short my days. So I said, do not take me away, O my God, in the midst of my days. Your years go on through all generations. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be discarded, but you remain the same and your years will never end. The children of your servants will live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. And before we go on, I just want to pray. I pray for those who kind of relate with some of this. And before we look at the other two points, I just believe God wants to come and minister to some people. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, I want to pray right now you come and unlock the prison doors. Do you unlock those things that are keeping us bound, that are keeping us in darkness? Those emotions that, that, that just overwhelm us, leave us despairing and hopeless. 
Holy Spirit, I want to pray right now you'll come and unlock us to, to be honest, to be real, to express what and how we're really feeling. And would you meet with us in that place? I want to ask you, even now, you would open eyes in this room to the reality of our holy God, of our mighty sovereign God, the God who outlasts all of us, the God who is without beginning and without end, the God who is good through it all. Spirit of God, would you come and draw from us praise, even from our anguish, even from our prison cells. Would you lead us out from the boxed in, hemmed in place we are to a more spacious place where we get to experience something of the joy and delight and power of God in our lives all over again. Amen. Where you run to God with your problems, your questions, your frustrations, your pain, you get to know the character and the nature of God. And the Psalms are great tools for that. You find a psalm that kind of almost puts into words how you're feeling. Use the psalms as prayers in your own life. But if you run from God, it's as though your problems will always be the biggest thing, the most powerful thing in your life. And that's the first problem. If you refuse to be honest with God and with others, it's as though worship becomes an impossibility. And the first problem actually leads to the second problem. If we're not honest with God and honest with others about where we really are, in the end we're forced to pretend that everything is okay when actually it's really not. I want to tell you why that's foolish. To get from point A to point B, you have to know where point A is and you have to know where point B is. If you're not clear about either one of those, where you are or where you want to go, you're not going to go anywhere. So, for example, imagine if later on I phoned you up and asked you how to get to Dudley. Now, the first question you'd ask is, where are you coming from? And if I went, I don't know then in reality, you can't tell me how to get there. You need to know where I am to help get me where I want to go. Kind of understand what I'm saying. Don't be distracted by Dudley and and all of those thoughts. We need to know where we are and where we're going. If we can't be honest about where we are, we're simply going to pretend that we're something or someplace that we're not. And let me tell you why that's dangerous. It's very easy to get the routine down to a T in Christian circles. I grew up in my early years in a pretty traditional Baptist church. It kind of changed as I was growing older, not because I was growing older, but in the early years of my life, I was in this traditional Baptist church. No one even needed to tell me when to stand up and when to sit down. I knew I mean, it was exactly the same every week. You're going to stand up, 
there's going to be an offertory song, then you sit down, they pass the plate, you stand, you sing another song, then you sit down, then the sermon happens, then they pass down the rows, the wafers and those small glasses of communion juice, everyone puts on a very kind of deep, pious expression, then puts it off their faces and leaves. It's like there was a rhythm that was established where I never needed to be told when to stand, when to sit, what to do. I just knew. Now, I think the same is true about Church Central. You can kind of learn our language here. You you can learn what we say and how we do things, the language we give to things. You do it all without it meaning anything to you. And when that happens for any great length of time, it can be really very exhausting. You see, it takes a whole lot of energy to keep up the pretense, to ensure that the mask doesn't slip, to to make sure people don't see what I'm really like under the surface. And the problem with living this kind of a double existence is I can never be confident in God's love for me and I can never accept that other people really genuinely care for me. Because if anyone shows me kindness, if anyone shows care or mercy or grace or love to me, it's easy just to push it away because they don't really know me. They don't know what I'm like underneath the surface. I mean, if they really knew me, if they really knew all of this stuff, there's no way they'd be kind to me or gracious or loving or kind. So we're forced to continue the pretense. And all the time, we feel further and further away from God and more disconnected from others. We we can be in a room like this, full of other people, but still feeling acutely lonely. And so in the end, it's easy just to stay away. It's not as exhausting that way. I can't tell you the number of people that I have walked with over the years that in the end struggled with doubt or feelings of weakness, or secret sin, for years and years and years, and never told anyone anything about it, because they thought everyone else was okay. They thought they were the only ones. They don't think anyone else struggled with their issue. They didn't think anyone else had a problem like they had, a past like they had. They didn't think anyone else wrestled with the anger, or the lust, or the debt, or the pornography, or whatever. I felt all alone in it, because the church had become this place where all the perfect people hang out. And that leads me to the third thing that happens when you refuse to be honest with God and you refuse to be honest with others. I think really this is the biggest one. This is the one that can devastate the most. In the end, whatever your fear is, whatever your doubt is, whatever your addiction is, whatever your issue is, all your vitality, all your energy, all of your effort, all your focus will go into trying to subdue that thing, hiding that thing, avoiding that thing, or trying to overcome that thing. And at the end of the day, the thing that you'll forget about is the cross, you'll forget about the cross. The objective evidence of God's love and care for you is the cross 
of Jesus Christ. But what happens for so many of us is we become issue-driven and not cross-driven. So what happens over here is kind of you're going to fail at some point. You're going to stumble at some point. You're going to experience doubt or pain at some point. You're going to have these moments where you fall short, where you fail. You're going to have these moments where you fall back into bad patterns. And if you don't understand the cross, if you don't understand the mercy of God given to us in Jesus then what you're trying to do is muster more strength and more energy and more effort to overcome this thing that you can never beat. And so you take your eyes off the objective evidence of God's love for you, that Jesus died for you while you were at your very worst. You see, if your eyes are on that everything changes. Everything changes. Growing up in a traditional Baptist church, we sang the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Anyone remember that song? A few people. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of of his glory and grace. As some of you will be thinking, why can't we sing songs like that? Others will be thinking, I'm really relieved that that one's kind of died a death. The words might seem slightly twee to you, but in reality they are incredibly profound. How does sin lose its power in our lives? Not by us disciplining ourselves in such a way that our sin doesn't own us. It doesn't happen just by mowing over the weeds, pretending they're not there, but the roots are still under the surface. It happens by marvelling at the gift, the free gift of mercy and grace in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what makes sin lose its power. When Jesus becomes more lovely and more attractive and more wonderful than the sin and the fear and the doubt and the questions and the pain. And it's in that moment when we see the cross that we understand that whatever this problem, this difficulty, this source of pain is, it really isn't God punishing us. Do you know how I know that? Because for every single one of us in this room who has trusted in Jesus for our salvation, all the wrath of God towards us was absorbed on the cross when Jesus hung on it. So we have nothing over our life but mercy and grace. Which means that This road we're on, wherever it leads and however it leads, has everything to do with God's glory and our joy. And that God, for whatever reason, has decided to allow us to go through what we're going through. And I know that doesn't necessarily stop the pain, doesn't answer all the questions, but it also doesn't throw into jeopardy the reality of God's continued love and care for us. That was proved once and for all when Jesus took all the wrath of the Father against our sin when he died for us 
on the cross. So here's what I know. God loves us more than we could fully grasp. God loves us infinitely more than we love ourselves. He has a plan for our life that he is working out right now regardless of what we're going through. And in the scheme of things, when all is said and done and we are with him in eternity in glory, it may well make a whole lot more sense. But in the meantime, what I know is he's given me today. And so for now, I'm going to keep focusing and trusting in the cross of Jesus Christ. So as we draw to a close, here's my hope. My hope is that you grow tired of playing church, that it exhausts you to the point of giving up on playing the game, and that all the lies that you've picked up over the years about not being able to be honest or having to be perfect, they would get lost in this series. Because it's simply not true. God delights in showing mercy to those who don't deserve mercy. It's the whole point of the Bible. I mean, look at who God calls to himself as major players in the Scriptures. It's hard to think of a single one who didn't have monumental shortcomings. Listen, There is absolutely no sin in your life with more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. And what's heartbreaking for me is some of you, despite my pleading with you, you're still going to have to learn this the hard way. Some of you are still going to ignore this message And you're going to walk out of this room and endure a whole load more self-inflicted pain before maybe one day you come to your senses and put your trust in him and him alone. So my hope is that you will hear this and that the Holy Spirit will open your mind and your heart towards God and you'd simply surrender to him. My hope is that maybe, as a result of what you've heard today, you'll turn to the friends who brought you along, or the life group you're in, one of the leaders of the church, and you'd be honest. You'd be honest. Just been pretending all this time. These are the issues that deep down I've really been struggling with. This thing happened back then. I still don't trust God, even today. I don't understand what what God's doing in all of this. I I don't like what's happening in my life. So frustrated, so many unanswered questions. Here they are. And that you let the people around you help you and try and lead you to a deeper place in God. And maybe you're here and you feel like you don't have that context. Maybe you're just visiting today. Maybe you feel a little bit like you're, you're, you're on the outside looking in. I just want to say, there will be people at the front here at the end who when we finish, you can just kind of discreetly wander up to the front. They'd they love to chat with you. Maybe you want to kind of vent your spleen at them. They can take it, that's fine. 
as long as you allow them to pray for you and minister something of the love of God into your situation. My prayer is that God would use Habakkuk to ruin us so we'd become utterly dependent on him. And the amazing thing we'll talk about next week is that God not only hears this rant of Habakkuk, but he actually answers him. That's next week. I want us to end in prayer. Let's stand.